Could um, uh, Cynthia, Cynthia give me some water? So I've uh, I added the medication to my increasing pile of meds. I guess that's just age, and um, I've had dry mouth a lot lately. And um, I had a wedding the other day, and it happened there. So I'm feeling it come on, so I want to be ready. So if I drink water more than normal today, that's why. <clears throat> I want to do a quick overview of kind of where we've gone so far in Acts. We started this back in the beginning of the summer. And I want to point out some, some really key developments from these early chapters of this story of the church. Thank you. We touched on this last week. If you go back to the first chapter, when the disciples were gathered with Jesus before he ascended to heaven, he told them that to go to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit, and then you will be empowered, and then you will be my witnesses. And he had a specific order in Jerusalem, where they were, in Judea, which is the surrounding area, in Samaria, which was just to the north, and then unto the ends of the earth. And so that was the the pattern that you actually see take place through the book of Acts in these earliest chapters. That pattern is fulfilled. But it's not entirely fulfilled by the 12. In fact, and we'll see this more going forward, and I'll touch on it here also, that some of the apostles were reluctant to go beyond their own people only. And so it's like God had to call in more recruits to, to do what God had in mind all along. His work will get done regardless but sometimes the call, they're maybe getting a little slow. But let, let's take a look at some of this. Um, who did God call to keep the church moving? Um, the dot, the star is where Jerusalem is. Okay. I love maps, so I can pick out the... See, there, there's actually a cool... T- I like that. Yeah, there's the Mediterranean Sea, and th- this is uh, the Sea of Galilee. That's up here. This is the Dead Sea. So that's, that's where... Here's Jerusalem. Can I read about there? So there you have Um well, for the first two steps in the process, Jerusalem and Judea, it happens in Acts 1 through 4. And then obviously on, on Pentecost, all those believers, 3,000 the first day, and there was thousands added later. So those first weeks and months in Jerusalem were exciting. Now, it doesn't specifically identify Judea as a place the apostles went to, but Judea was the area around it. So because Jerusalem and the temple was uh, such, so central to life, not just to the residents of Jerusalem, but to all the people who lived in the region of Judea, it would be very reasonable to assume that the gospel had gone there because all the people come in and going. So, for example, Bethlehem, uh, Jericho, uh, Bethany, all those places were very close by, so the gospel was reaching there as well. And this happens in the first five or so chapters, and the ones that are identified as the ones doing so, preaching and people responding, were the twelve. Especially Peter, a little bit of John, but the 12 apostles. When you get to the 6th and 7th chapter, there's a shift. And this is when uh, there is the choosing of the seven. We looked at a couple of weeks ago. There was a, a problem that some of the widows weren't being uh, cared for. And they're trying to do care for people's needs. That's what churches do. So the apostles assigned seven people to take care of that task. Among those seven was Stephen and Philip. And Philip is who we looked at last week, and we'll touch on him again in a moment. But Stephen was eventually, in fact, very quickly, once he proclaimed the gospel once again before the Sanhedrin, and he was put to death. From the death of Stephen on, there's a shift, I won't say away from the 12, but God is using other 
people. We looked at this last week. In Samaria, who goes there? Philip. Not Philip the Apostle. There is an apostle named Philip. This is another Philip. And then Peter and John came to check it out. And it does say that on their way back from Samaria, right about here, back to Jerusalem, they uh, were preaching the gospel you know, as they went along. And so they, they did go and, and fulfill that part. Then something else that Philip did um, is reach out to uh, the ends of the earth indirectly through the uh, Ethiopian man that he talked to and about the, the scripture that he was reading. Look at that last week. So the gospel then went to Africa. That's this way. Okay, this way down, right? And so, although we don't have any word about that in the Bible, there is you know, clear evidence that the church has a long history in Africa as well. And that's where it probably began, at least one of the first people. Um, and then in the ninth chapter, the ends of the earth, well, God miraculously brings in this man, Saul, because perhaps the disciples were not moving quickly enough. What was the urgency? Well, there was a couple of things. Were they going to get too comfortable with Jerusalem kind of being thousands of people? We got this mega church. Oh, we got too, enough to do here. We'll let somebody else worry about the ends of the earth. It doesn't say that directly, so I want to be careful about that. But there is resistance that we do see in the scriptures when you get to the 10th chapter, and you'll see that very clearly. And so he calls this guy named Saul. Why him? Because he is a Jew from the Greek world. He was very Jewish. He was a Pharisee. He uh, knew the law. He was a very passionate man. And when he heard about these people following Jesus, who he thought to be a false prophet, who he believed with all his heart was dead, and these people are claiming he's the Messiah. He was so angry, he took that passion and went out and arrested people. But he was ideal for God's, uh, God's planning, God, God's position, if you will, of the leader of the people to reach the Gentiles because he also understood the Gentile world. He spoke their language, literally. And, and so that's important too. And then um, Cornelius in chapter 10, and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, um, he is a Roman centurion and a Gentile, but also someone who loves God. And through him, because of him, God reaches out to Peter, gives him a miracle, and, and shows him that, wait a minute, you need to reach these people too. So notice that, okay? Jerusalem and Judea, primarily the 12, at least at the beginning, the other places where... You know, Stephen and Philip and Saul and Cornelius and Peter only came along reluctantly at that point. All right? So how did God intervene to keep the church moving? I think this is really important because certainly the most important intervention was the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And, and all those people believed and the, the apostles and, and, you know, they were, they were ready to go. They had that power of the Spirit living in them. But sometimes God did something additional. Sometimes it was such a key moment, an important situation, that he most typically would send an angel. So, for example, back there in that first chapter of Acts, when he gives them that process of going to Jerusalem, Judea, etc., then he ascends into heaven, and we see there that they were just standing there gawking into the sky, 
And God sent two men dressed in white to kind of tap them on the shoulder. Hey, fellas, come on, break it up, get going. I mean, they wanted to look as long as they could and kind of sort of soak in the moment, I guess. But that was important enough for God to send two men in white, presumably angels, two men in white at the, at the resurrection, at the tomb. Okay, it's very similar. Probably the same two, I'm guessing. But then in fact, chapter 5, an angel is sent to set the apostles free from prison. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Stephen is said to have the face of an angel before he speaks to the Sanhedrin. God empowered him in a unique kind of way. There is an angel that instructs Philip to go to meet this Ethiopian man, and the gospel ends up in Africa. There is a, now in today's, ta- in today's passage, a light from heaven and the voice of Jesus coming to this man Saul, and then working ahead about Cornelius and, and Peter, whom I mentioned, Cornelius, Cornelius was given a vision because God honored his faith about someone named Peter. Peter was given a vision to go and meet someone named Cornelius. That was really important for them because Peter needed to see that people are not unclean. Well, kind of that's a teaser for that message that week, all right? Pete, no one is unclean. And then lastly, and there's... There's more after this, but just for this first half of the book almost, 12th chapter, Peter is again set free from prison by an angel. So you see, God sees things have to move a little quicker, so he calls in new people. God sees things are at a very keen moment, it could go either way, so he sent an angel. Um, Paul writes in Hebrews, no, excuse me, the author of Hebrews, not necessarily Paul, um, about the possibility of having entertained angels without being aware of it, okay? So if you're kind of stuck on that classic picture of an angel having wings and a halo and flying through the air, nah. I mean, before the throne of God, maybe, but they come to earth and they look like people. So do angels still move in and out of our world now? I believe so. I really do. And maybe, maybe you've had an encounter with someone, someone point in your life where someone was so incredibly encouraged or encouraging or helpful to you or something that, that, you know, that could have been an angel, a messenger from God. So this is what God did to help keep things moving. Okay, now to today's story. So with that backdrop, we have God intervening in another very powerful way because the apostles apparently weren't ready, willing, were reluctant to go into all the world. Maybe they go to reach all the Jews that were spread out throughout the world, but these other people, these Gentiles, eh, that's tough, that's hard. So he calls Paul. Who is Paul? All we know so far is from the end of the 8th chapter into the beginning, excuse me, end of the 7th into the 8th, he was, he approved of a violent murder when Stephen was killed. He watched their cloaks as they took them off so they can limber up and throw the rocks even harder. He um, is then said to approve of it. Yeah, this is a good thing. A couple verses later, he says he began to destroy the church in Acts 8.3. So he took that passion he had in his heart and was going to go out and, and bring murderous threats. Chapter 9, the first couple of verses... And now with the, the, with the authority of the high priest, who's, who is really quite pleased about this. Wow, this guy's he's, he's got it going. People are going to follow him. Yeah, you go, you go, Saul. You go get those, those lousy Jesus followers. Throw them in jail. Beat them up. Kill them. I don't care. Just get them out of our world. And that's the way he felt about it. 
in his own words, this is one of a couple of places, but I'll just pick this one from Philippians. This is Paul's words about his past. Okay? Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may... No, back up. I I was supposed to go paragraph before that. Sorry. Okay. This is verse 4. If someone else thinks they have a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on law, faultless. And then he goes on seventh, but whatever were gains for me, now I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So that was his path. This is who we're working with here. This is who God is working with when that light comes and the voice comes with it. And the first words that Jesus speaks to Paul are so important. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, the light was so bright and the sound so strong that it it knocked him over. You might have seen depictions of this story on classic paintings over the the ages with him being knocked off his horse. And the horse, you know, uh, was jolted and and upset by the light and the voice and the sound. And so he got thrown off his horse. Well, it doesn't say horses here. He could have, actually, because this this was financed by the high priest and he had money. You didn't have a horse unless you had money. They were expensive, okay? So, um, maybe, but nonetheless, he's knocked to the ground. And what Christ wanted Saul to know from the start that the church is his body. So why are you persecuting me? Now, there's no way that in that moment, this man Saul had any, any understanding of what that meant. He, he could have been thinking, what do you mean, you? I've been arresting Christians, I think they deserve it, but why do you persecute me? Because it is the body of Christ. His own words, again, in the book of 1 Corinthians, and this you can find many places in, in Paul's writings. 1227, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. He didn't understand that yet, but Christ wanted him to know that. And he even reinforced it. When Paul responds, the first words he says back, who are you, Lord? He knew it was something strange and powerful. He he must have thought it was God. What else could, could possibly do this? What else could have that kind of light? What else could speak to me? And those around him apparently couldn't understand the voice. They just heard loud noise, thunder or whatever. But he heard it. And the voice again says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That's the only information he has given. Then he's given a, a direction, instruction. Go into the city and wait there, and then you'll be told what to do. 
Now, if that were me, well, first of all, you have to, it takes a little bit to recollect yourself. Have you ever, have you ever received news or had a moment where something was so overwhelming you almost passed out? Or maybe you literally passed out. And, and, and so that, that takes, a, you have to step back for a few minutes. You have to collect yourself. And, and you know, what's going on? Is this real? That's, I think that's where the, that, that word surreal came from. It, it doesn't feel real. It, this can't be real. This isn't happening. And certainly Paul uh, would, would have those kind of feelings and emotions going on, I would think. But the voice doesn't give him any more than I'm Jesus, you're persecuting me, now go to the city and wait. Whoa. I gotta wait? I've got 50 questions, and then 500 after that. Wait? I don't like to wait. Anybody here like to wait? Anybody here have a test from the doctor? And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty rare, all the technology's getting better. You don't usually get word on a test very quickly, do you? Can be days until you know. And how is that time in between? Especially if it's something you're very concerned about. Usually if it's enough for a test, there's at least some concern. What if this is potentially life and death? You have to wait until you find out. And here is Saul waiting. He's left in the dark. He literally can't see. He won't eat. He can't do anything but his friends took him to town. He's sitting in this house in the dark. And not just the lack of sight or lack of light. It is the lack of understanding. It is, it is all confusion. His whole world was built on following the law of Moses and defeating anyone who claims to be from God who isn't these false prophets and those who follow them. We've got to put an end to them. That's what he gets up for in the morning. That's what gets him charged. And you mean I was wrong the whole time? Boy, at least three days. Three days. Darkness, waiting. Oh, by the way, what else took three days? Jonah, the belly of a whale. Darkness and terror. Who was in the grave for three days? Jesus. Something about that three days. But now God brings in another new character into the story. He gives Ananias a vision about this man Paul, and Paul gets a vision also that he's to meet a man named Ananias. So the two at least knew they were supposed to be together, but but when they get this word, there's still got to be questions, okay? So Ananias, oh, can I trust in God's vision? I, he had faith, he did, but you know, there, there can be some doubts there. Did I just dream that up? Because what he said, can, can I trust that Saul won't turn on me? Now, God said it, so I'm going to go forward, but you know, somewhere in the backdrop, a little bit of those whispering doubts. Look out, he's going to turn, he's killed Christians, he's going to kill you, look out. And then Saul had to trust him. He never met the man before. He's a stranger, and he's a follower of Jesus, and he's been hunting down these people. Now he's supposed to trust one of them? Especially because this guy already knows that the reason he came into the city was to arrest people like him, and now he's going to meet with them willingly. Wow. Was this all real? Is that part of Saul's three days? 
Was he hoping he was he going to wake up and be back on the path in Damascus? And hey, guys, that was a weird dream, wasn't it? And they said, Yeah, it was. Boy, you were out there, buddy. Let's go. No, it didn't happen. This was real. He had to come to terms with with all of that. And the other word about Ananias and 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 Saul here is that they're on a mission, and Saul especially, and the mission was was conveyed to. Saul through Ananias, according to Acts. This man was, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Now it gets even worse. For Paul, excuse me, Saul. <laughs> I probably did it a couple times already. For Saul, it's even worse. Because it's one thing to realize that I've been all wrong about arresting my own people because Jesus is alive and their faith is legit and this is real and I need to get on board. But getting on board means I not only go out and reach my own people, I reach who? The Gentiles? He knew Gentiles. As I said at the start, he was from the Gentile world, from the Greek world. He understood the culture. He understood the language. He understood how they thought. If you can understand this phrase, it, it, it's the, the, the Greek mind, okay, was, was so prevalent throughout the Roman Empire. And so, except in places like Israel, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and Paul was part of both. He was a Roman citizen. Not very many Jews were Roman citizens. And so, as we go forward in Acts, we're going to see how that comes in really handy down the line. The fact that he is a Roman citizen. So that's why God called him. But that first time that, that Saul heard this, um, you're going to reach the Gentiles had to be just earth-shattering to him. But he brought his sight. Excuse me, Ananias prayed and brought his sight back, and not just his eyes. Jesus has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So first of all, his eyes were healed. Something like scales came out, and that's a that's kind of a phrase you hear to this day. The scales came from your eyes when you finally awaken to something. You finally understand something. So, so there was, his, his vision was restored. He could now see Ananias before him and the light in the room and his own hands and feet. But there was a problem with his eyes after that. Because he says in um, a couple of his writings about a thorn in his flesh that he prayed for God to remove. That may have been it. It doesn't say that specifically, okay? I'll be clear about that. But a lot of scholars believe it was his eyes. He was losing his sight. Because what is clear in his letters is that his, his vision got so bad eventually. Now I'm talking decades later, okay? Long, long time. But his vision got so bad that he had to dictate the writings, so the, many of the letters of Paul were the hand who wrote it was someone like Timothy. Um, but um, it was you know, from, him, from him inspired by the Spirit to say what he said. So his eyes came back you know, for, for a long time, but he was also able to see because of the Holy Spirit. And that vision never goes away. 
he, he had a, a deeper understanding of, of what this meant and who Jesus is, and he wanted to investigate and learn and, and see the scriptures he cherished from the, this whole new light, this whole new sight. He could see Jesus in different light. In fact, it's almost like seeing Jesus in the dark versus seeing Jesus as light. And he's, if you think he's in the grave, that's seeing Jesus in the dark. It's quiet. It's empty. There's nothing. But if you see Jesus in the light, the whole world opens up to you. Now and forever. And, and Paul began to grasp that. So again, Saul. The Paul thing comes in later. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, in fact, I'll just tell you what it is if I haven't already. Um, Saul is a Hebrew name. Paul is a Greek name for the same name. Okay? So when he fully goes to only the Gentiles, because he, because he does go to his own people at first, and kind of both at the same time, but eventually his own people in some places don't like him. All right? So he goes fully to his own people, the gent that is Gentile people, excuse me, that's when he changes his name to Paul. So they would look at him as a fellow Greek, not one of those crazy people from, you know, Jerusalem. <clears throat> God intervened by calling Saul to take the gospel to the Gentile world because he was the right man for the job, because Peter and the other apostles were reluctant to accept that their Jesus belong to everyone. That they're Jesus. And, and, and this isn't me filling in the gaps here. Get to chapter 10. And we're going to see how Peter had to, how God had to once again intervene into Peter to convince him that this really was for everybody. They still had to believe, they had to be told, but there, it potentially every person can indeed become a follower of Jesus, Jew or Gentile, Samaritan. It doesn't matter in God's eyes. He loves them all the same. And even after the event that happened in the 10th chapter, we go forward into Acts and we'll see how other issues arose. Okay, you are believers, but here's what you got to do now. You have to follow the rules that Moses laid out because many of them were still following those rules, not dependent on salvation, but because it was part of their culture. And they see these new Christians in the Gentile world coming and not following those rules. Hey, wait a minute, fellas, slow down. Okay, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, but... You also have to do this. If there's any also in faith, well, it's not the gospel, okay? <laughs> we are brothers and sisters in Christ based on faith in the one God sent, Jesus Christ, died and risen for you. That's it. But people like to become exclusive. It's our thing. Yeah, those people out there, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're talking about. They, we don't want them in here anyway. Let's just have a little club back here in Jerusalem. And God knew that would be their temptation to pull in. But Paul keeps going out and bringing in more and bringing in more. And it's even though the, the, the Jew-Gentile thing isn't an issue for us today, I got one for you. How about Christian Muslim? That's a biggie, isn't it? Yes. Because Muslims get lumped in, okay, there's 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, all right? So a small and very dangerous faction of them blows things up, causes havoc, terrible, awful, and, and, and all of the 
the, the murdering, the terrorism that happens, shouldn't happen. Shouldn't happen for them or anyone else either. They're not the only ones. But the vast majority of them believe in one God. So guess what that is? That's a starting point of a conversation. In other words, you have a place of agreement. So if I were, were to sit down with a Muslim person, and I've done this a couple of times in my life, and just have a conversation, you know, that's where you agree. You have one God. They call that God Allah. We say, well, it's God, but God really doesn't have a name. And they get that. They both trace back to Abraham. Okay, let's go back to Genesis. All right. Then along comes Muhammad and things start to bend around a little bit. And they still respect Jesus, but he's not what we think. That's where you have a conversation, but you, you agree to disagree as you go. But if from the get-go you think, all oh, Muslims, they're no good. Just let them go. They're going to hell. I like it that way. And go back to your own corner. Is that the gospel? Is that what God wants? No. And, and that's just one grouping, okay? And, and we're so good at this, and that's not something to be good at, but evil is effective. Let me put it that way. We're, we are so, evil is so effective in just creating barriers and walls all over the place. And we all get, you know, lonely in our little boxes with the other people who think like we do, and we don't want to go out there in a dark world where someone might disagree. And it gets hard because the disagreement's getting pretty violent, verbally violent. And like it's verbally violent, other violence doesn't take too long to happen. And that never pleases God. So how do we feel about the people that, at least maybe you not personally, but your friends, family, a lot of them just might, might have this sense that, yeah, those people out there, fill in the gap of what that might be, you're going to avoid them. Oh, God, you can't mean reach them. There's going to be rejection. Yep. <laughs> now think about the apostles. They first tried to reach their own people, and their own people tried to kill them. They had to go to Samaria where they hated. They went into the rest of the world then, where they thought they were crazy, that is the, the Gentile world, thought the Christian world was nuts because, well, first of all, you only had one God. Who believes in one God, you wimps? Boy, no wonder you're messed up. You know, only one God, hey. But then also that that one God died. Oh, now you're really messing with me, aren't you? Come on, you have only one God, he came to the world, and he died, how did he die? You know, was it a big, you know, in battle, and he went out in blaze of glory? No, he willingly went to a cross. What? Are you kidding me? That's the most shameful way to die on the planet. And that's awful. And that's when Paul says about the gospel is foolishness to the world. That's what he's talking about. Foolishness because that's the way you would normally characterize gods. That they're powerful and they win and they're big and they're strong and they conquer. And here's Jesus being peaceful and loving and laying down his life and dying a, a criminal's death on a horrible execution, but he is the Lord. Why is that? We know that because he rose from the grave. Amen. Turned everything around. Took the light into the darkness and kicked its butt and came out. <laughs> so we can all have hope. And let me close with this. When the light of truth blinds you and the voice of Christ calls you, 
Are you ready to trust that God has a mission for you? Open the eyes of your heart so your sight will be set upon His purpose in you. Father, we ask that that those words would be a prayer in our hearts, that we would be ready and we don't necessarily have to be shocked into serving you the way Saul was and yet sometimes you give us moments where we have to at least pause, moments where we have to reevaluate, moments where we have to reprioritize, moments where we have to say, Lord, I'm ready. And I don't even know what I'm getting into just yet because you haven't told me, but I'm ready for something. And an open heart for whatever he may fill you is something that God's going to fill. So we thank you, Lord God. In your name, amen.